Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tosh Robinson, here with Genevieve Kosky and Keith Phipps. Scott Tobias is off busking in Europe, but we found someone else playing cello on the street and brought him in to fill Scott's chair in the orchestra. Podcaster, musician, culture writer, and fan of the show, David Chen, who last joined us for a pairing of Akira Kurosawa's Throne of Blood and Joel Cohen's Macbeth. David has a lot of podcasts and a lot of ventures going on at any particular time, but his latest project, which we heartily recommend you check out and which we'll be pointing to some specific aspects of during this pairing, is Decoding Everything, a collection of cultural writing and interviews you can find at decodingeverything.com. Welcome back to the show, David. It is an absolute thrill to be back. Uh, Thank you for the invitation. Much though you seemed concerned that uh, all of our podcast listeners would run away in terror at at your last pairing. Uh, It in fact pushed us over the edge. Uh, We were taken to the the downtown Chicago and given the key to the city. They said, this is what we've been waiting for all along, Uh, which makes it odd that we've waited so long to invite you back, David. Yeah, a lot of (laughs) mysteries. (laughs) <laughs> well, this one's really up your alley. You've, you've already written about one of these movies, and we're going to see what you think about the other one. Uh, this week, we're going to be discussing two romantic films where if you look at it a certain way, absolutely nothing happens. Everybody has big feelings, but nobody takes big actions, at least not the kind of like grand romantic gestures that films like Rye Lane, a recent Next Picture Show pick, associate with true romance. Keith, would you like to give listeners a rundown on what we'll be discussing in this pairing? Sure thing. Uh, Celine Song's feature directorial debut, Past Lives, follows two young Korean people through three different phases of their lives, with different barriers separating them in all three acts. Nora, played by Greta Lee, and Hae Sung, played by Tae Yu, grow up together as friends in South Korea, but they're separated in childhood when Nora's family emigrates to Canada. They reconnect via lengthy online chats in their 20s, but neither of them feels like they're at a time in their lives where they can travel to meet in person. And then they meet in their 30s. Both feel like they may have missed a window for romance, especially since Nora is already married to a man she loves. That particular shape of adult love triangle, and the particular ways it's expressed, remind us a lot of John Carney's Once, a low-key Irish arthouse hit starring musical partners Glenn Hansard and Marquetta Erglova as a duo who meet on the street and feel an obvious attraction that they can't act on, in part because she's already married with a child. The connections between these movies run deeper as Nora works to establish herself as a writer while the stars of Once are working to establish themselves as musicians. Both films explore issues of longing, timing, immigration, and what it means to say no to romance. We'll kick off the conversation this week with the street-level music of Once, and we'll be back next week with the more cosmic missed connection of past lives. Stay tuned. This song for She's gone. 
she's dead? No, she's not dead. He's gone. My father used to play in the orchestra back at home. You don't want to go for a walk or something, huh? Whenever you watch a movie where one or more lead characters don't actually get names, you know a conscious statement is being made. Maybe it's that they're met as such relatable or iconic figures that they don't need the specificity of identification, because they're stand-ins for anyone, including you. Maybe they have an iconic title instead, like The Bride and Kill Bill, or maybe obfuscating and exploring an identity is the point, like in Fight Club. Maybe there are just much more important things going on in the story, like in Twelve Angry Men. In John Carney's Once, though, it feels like the leads never get names because they just don't need them. For much of the movie, they explore a relationship that feels so personal, it's as if everyone else falls away. They aren't alone in a place where they don't know anyone else, like Jesse and Selene in Before Sunrise, or literally alone in the world, like the characters in Boca, or I Think We're Alone Now. They both have friends and family members who shape their lives and their days. They both have jobs, hobbies, ambitions, and past relationships. And yet they never speak each other's names, because once they're past that first awkward street meeting, names seem unimportant. They're both a little too raw and pared down for identity. They're both focused on each other and the dodges and deferrals that define their connection. Identified only as guy and girl, the leads are played by musicians Glenn Hansard and Marketa Arglova, who met and started performing together when Arglova was 13 years old. Hansard was a touring musician with his band The Frames, and Roglova's father was promoting his music in the Czech Republic, which led to her performing locally with the band. Hansard and her father became friends, and when Hansard's former Frames bassist turned filmmaker, John Carney, was looking for a female lead and musical collaborator for once, Hansard suggested Roglova, who was 17 at the time. The movie follows these two characters as they meet in the streets of Dublin. Guy, an Irish native, works in his father's small shop fixing vacuums, and he busks in his spare time. Girl, a Czech immigrant, cleans houses, sells flowers in the street, and does other odd jobs. They hit it off, with Guy first reluctant over the way she calmly pushes herself into his life and demands things from him, then eventually smitten with her. But while Girl seems to share his feelings, she has an entire life she feels obligated to, including a husband back home and a toddler and mother in Ireland who she's supporting. She holds Guy at a bit of a distance, but that becomes harder and harder as they start to sing, compose, and eventually record together. Once was developed over the course of a few years, with the songs written for the musical, and then the film itself shot over a few breakneck weeks without film permits, which left Carney filming his characters from a distance with telephoto lenses in order to hide the cameras from onlookers and give the actors more space to play out their scenes. Erglova had never acted before. Hansard had a single minor role in the movie The Commitments. Letting the film play out naturally between them, with some scenes and lines improvised, and with Carney capturing actual crowd responses to Hansard's street busking, was part of what gave Once its flavor. So is the established chemistry between Erglova and Hansard as singers and musicians who know each other's rhythms, a must for the movie's many musical performance scenes. But the story's focus on love versus obligation, and the distance between the characters, caught audiences' attention as much as the memorable music. The movie was the definition of an art house hit, made for around $150,000 and bringing in more than $20 million in theatrical release, then going on to win a Best Song Oscar for the lead single, Falling Slowly. Once was adapted as a stage musical, which spent years on Broadway and swept the Tony Awards in its opening year. Part of that success comes from the way the film's bittersweet ending lingers in people's imaginations. Guy and girl part ways, with him pursuing a musical career and her pursuing reconciliation with her husband. The movie never once suggests that she might be able to do both, or chase her own musical dreams, if she has musical dreams of her own at all. But while that might feel like an awkward oversight in another movie, specifically one where the characters are a little more realized and a little less iconic, a little more fixed in time and place, and a little less broad and archetypal, in Once it feels less like an imbalance between the characters, and more like an illustration of two different paths for a working musician. They both have real identities, and they do have a real romance. Once invites the audience to root for them to get together, while also understanding why they can't. 
But Carney also invites viewers to relate to these two primarily through their music, which expresses things they don't always say in words about what exactly they're missing in life or aching for, including in each other. Music is such a universal invitation that Once's nameless leads end up feeling more like dimly glimpsed implied characters from these yearning, lonely romantic songs than like the messily specific characters they could be. In spite of the movie's title, nothing here really feels like it happened only once in a single place in time. The characters' fleeting connection, their longing, and the way they move on feels like things that are meant to happen over and over again in our minds whenever we go back and listen to these songs. What's the check for ocean? Ocean. Ocean. Pretty much the same. Ocean. So what are you going to do? I don't know. There's such distance between me and him. He's so much different to me and so much older. It doesn't really work. I'm fine on my own, you know? It's just I don't want Ivana to grow up without a father. What's the check for the love? So, so this is a pretty low budge film. I, I I talk in the keynote a little bit about how it was it was filmed guerrilla style, kind of before really high def digital cameras could do this kind of like long distance low light thing. The whole movie's a little fuzzy, a little low def, at least by today's standards. But making it this way was just very much part of the process that got us kind of the performances and the shape that we got. What what do you all make of kind of the filmmaking in once just in terms of how it's shot, how it's put together? I mean, it's not pretty per se, <laughs> but I feel like it's it fits it's a case of form fitting content you know i I actually kind of think it's kind of perfect for this and you know it it is in some ways they're making a demos of these songs it's almost like a demo version of of a film and it it kind of works that way that is not a comparison i would have made but that is extremely funny honestly just the idea of making a demo film a demo film for the broadway play really yeah. yeah, I guess in some way. Yeah. I was enjoying on this rewatch paying attention to the the people in the the street scenes, knowing that they it was filmed guerrilla style, uh, and you know a lot of the extras didn't necessarily know what was happening. And the scene where girl is uh, walking out of the store after buying batteries for the CD player, there's like a bunch of young girls like outside, and they're like following her and like as she's singing, and you can kind of it feels like like they don't know that a movie's happening they probably did probably didn't but it just like added a really fun kind of layer maybe took me out of it a little bit but uh, you know i don't i don't think it's a problem and it's fun especially on rewatch to catch those kind of little moments and that moment feels a little unreal anyway yeah it actually feels like a music video the way Mm -hmm. it's shot Mm -hmm. and with the long tracking shot i think the thing that's really interesting about these kinds of movies uh that were shot during this time period uh, the other movie I think of is uh, 28 Days Later that was also shot on a digital mm-hmm. camera. This is like when digital cameras were really starting to come into their own. To be fair, I believe 28 Days Later was shot on a different camera. I think it was shot on a Canon and this was shot on a Sony camera. Um, so it's not the same camera or anything, but I think they're similar in terms of their aesthetics. Is having movies shot on these specific types of digital cameras really dates the movie and sets it at a very specific point in time because it's so weird for most of the history of cinema you have you know you're shooting on film right then you have like the burgeoning of these digital cameras that have a very specific aesthetic they look like old youtube videos is what i would describe them right Mm. and it almost feels like watching something shot on videotape uh like years ago you know (laughs) and then after you know now you can buy you go down the street buy a camera for like eight hundred dollars that you know almost looks as good as something you could shoot on on film you know many years ago uh so there's basically like a tiny slice of time when you know it, it was very obvious and you could easily identify digital cameras is shooting on um, uh, like what kind of digital camera is shooting a film. And so the effect for me is just like 
basically associating this movie with just this specific kind of five-year period of time. Uh, and it's kind of like preserving that time period for us. Yeah, preserving specifically the the transition from the expensiveness of film to a point where you could make a movie for $150,000 again, uh, as opposed to the the previous times you could make a movie for $150,000. Right. And, and, and it would look amazing. You know, it would look like extremely high quality um, as opposed to this, which is a little bit more dated, I think. There's also that one really interesting scene where he's watching home movies of him and and his ex, I think on a computer screen. I don't know. It's it's hard to tell, but it's like there's there's like another layer of even more like slightly older <laughs> video with it within this. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's like a montage that happens during one of the songs and yeah. you're seeing guys ex and it's like an even kind of crappier uh, yeah. <laughs> movie. So it's like, oh, there's that this film's version of home movies within yeah. this film. Yeah. Right. I wondered about that sequence because I I could have believed that it was shot on videotape mm-hmm. deliberately to give it that fuzz, but I just as easily could have believed that those were actual home movies of someone. I don't know who we're seeing there or sort of what the relevance is, but so much of this movie is just on the other side of people kind of being themselves and having their relationships in a movie, you know, so much of it is, is improvised and ad-libbed and just like pretty close to the working relationship between uh, Glenn and Marquetta. It would not surprise me if those were like revisited home movies from somebody involved in the, the film. Like, I don't, I don't remember a whole lot very specific there, although I think there is at least one shot of her with Glenn. The ex-girlfriend is played by Marcella Plunkett, who doesn't have a lot of credits, but her next credit after, well, no, she's a couple of things, but but Sing Street, she's also in Sing Street. Mm-hmm. So there's there is definitely seems like a, a carny associate of some kind. It's all friends and friends of friends in this film, like that party scene, too. That's just all all his his friends and his mom sings and his at one point. Went through. Very sweet. I thought that was a nice sequence, although I would I would like just a tiny bit more context when that comes up. It it's so as I kind of talked about in the keynote, like they have friends and and jobs and hobbies and uh, families and, and lives, but at the same time, something like that is just really out of the blue when you go from these two people exploring this very tender, very specific relationship to. Let's walk into a giant room full of people who will never be introduced, <laughs> uh, who we, we don't even know whose friends they are at first. And like nobody greets them in a very personal way. And then you come to find out this is probably something that Guy does on the regular. That's just sort of a collection of people who get together and sing. But the the details are all very fuzzy. And it just seems like such a, a fascinating social scene. I, I'd love to know just like a tiny bit more about it. It kind of feels to me like a sort of mirror of the scene when he uh, when Guy comes to a girl's apartment and meets her mom and her daughter and the three dudes who come over to, to watch TV. <laughs> it's just like each of them kind of being in each other's lives and, and spaces and being a bit of an outsider because, you know, she girls in that scene, too. She's just like kind of in the background watching him, you know, so I think it's sort of serves as an underlining of the fact that they do have, you know, lives separate from the other person, like not everything else in their life drops away the second they meet. And that's one of the big complications of this movie. Let me just put this out there, which is that I don't don't know how many of uh, present company are musicians. Um, but I, I'm a musician and there is a lot of kind of paradoxical dynamics at play, I think, when you are a musician making music with other people. Because on the one hand, it can be one of the most rewarding, satisfying experience, thrilling experiences one has ever participated in. And on the other hand, it's also incredibly transient. You know, it, it can be ex- extremely transient. Certainly it's economically precarious. Uh, as as is demonstrated in this movie. And so it's not like, oh, hey, this is a thing we can do consistently and make tons of money from. Like, And so sometimes these people float in and out of your lives. And that's, you know, that's very much kind of the core theme of the whole movie between these two characters as well. So to me, the whether or not we're introduced to the other musicians didn't really bother me that much. It, it felt like it captured kind of some of this real life dynamic of, hey, we're making something that is extremely beautiful. And probably I'm going to talk to you five other times the rest of my life. Now, that's not always true. Sometimes you become extremely close friends and uh, and those r- friendships can last a lifetime. But that's not always the case. So I felt like this, you know, that was one of the mo- more true to life elements of this film is 
is it captures how intimate and tender that connection can be and also how fleeting it can be. I love that you pointed that out. And it makes me want to turn to what I think is the scene of the movie, which is them playing falling slowly in the music uh, store together and kind of this, this moment of connection when they just can play together, you know? And I mean, I don't play music at level even close to that. Like, I've never experienced that uh, feeling of playing with someone else with uh, being able to instantly harmonize with someone else. But it's magical to watch. Like, that moment feels more romantic than anything else in the movie to me. And like, the romance of, of this film is so much more about the music than the two individuals in the romance. Absolutely. But also consider how precarious that moment is in in the sense Mm -hmm. that like all the things that had to like line up for that moment to happen. Right. Like she just happens to meet him that one night and she just happens to have this connection at this music store with this guy that just happens to be okay with her plan. You know, like if one of the if any step along that chain doesn't happen, like they never make music together and the movie doesn't happen. You know, so so it it feels like it's it's as powerful as you say, but it's also like it, it was very close to not happening, you know? It reminds me a little of the uh, the most recent A Star is Born, which we covered on this show, just in terms of uh, like that moment when Lady Gaga like walks out on stage and joins in on the song. There's been no rehearsal. There, she's just like jumping in and, and supposedly ad-libbing, but it feels like a very polished performance. And it does feel magical. I mean, I, I think in any movie, there's maybe a little bit of the fantasy of if you have somebody who's an expert at something and they meet somebody else who's on the same level at them, whether it's like two assassins recognizing each other in the middle of a fight <laughs> and having one of those like game recognizes game moment or something like this where you're playing music together. I think there's always just that when you see that moment of recognition in a film, it's it's always a little special. At the same time, David, I'm curious as a musician, like, I know that people, particularly in, in the jazz scene, can kind of sit down and say, like, we're doing we're doing this in this key uh, on this beat and just sort of start improvising together. But I am wondering how this plays for you in terms of here are the lyrics, the song goes da, 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 da just go with it. And then the next thing you know, they're playing this beautiful duet. I'd say it's mostly plausible. You know, like it's, it's, uh, I, I, I kind of am very, you know, when I see those scenes, I'm always curious, like, is this actually something that they could actually pull off? And I thought it was pretty plausible the way it plays out in the movie. It's not like unreasonable. It's not like um, Glee, you know, like the TV show where, you know, they come together and it's like perfect the first time. (laughs) Um, I think it's like, you know, the songs are kind of basic enough and, um, the direction clear enough that I, I think it could happen. That's my perspective anyway. So. But could that band have followed Marty McFly when he just says, watch before the changes? I mean, would, that, would that actually have worked? <laughs> no, I have no comment on that, Keith. I have no comment. <laughs> I want to go back to, we, we talked a little bit about the sequence where Guy sort of fantasizes about, remembers, uh, watches videos of his old girlfriend. One of the things that maybe strikes me most in this movie on a rewatch, uh, my my first rewatch since it came out, and I think I watched it a couple of times that year because I was so taken with it, and particularly with the music. Watching it, coming back to it again after all this time, like I maybe notice more the imbalance between them in terms of how they're presented and how the story is told. And one of the big things there is we see guys like sitting down with these memories of his old girlfriend after a girl has rejected him sexually. But we don't see the husband that she's rejecting him for until the very end of the movie. We end up with a lot more insight, I think, into his feelings and his life than hers, in part because we're listening to more songs that, within the confines of the movie at least, he has written about his relationship and and his past. And there are songs that she's written, and, and we have a very emotional moment around one of them, but it's less emphasized. So I'm I'm curious what you all make of kind of like that mode of storytelling in terms of kind of putting his experience first in a lot of ways. I mean, it puts her a little bit in a manic pixie dream girl role, <laughs> does it? Does it not? Because I mean, like he's so defined by this heartbreak, like not just his songs, but just his entire way of being. And it seems like that is maybe as much of a driver of his, his attraction to girl as the, the the music. Like he's just he seems to be in a very raw emotional place and kind of 
hungry for a connection that she gives him. So like I maybe I'm tipping my hand here a little in terms of like the romance, but like I don't necessarily think this is a lost romance for the ages. I think it's sort of a romance of context and circumstance. And I think his heartbreak is a big part of that context. I would agree. I think I, I agree with that. And it's a great point, Tasha, that it does feel like the movie is largely through his perspective, mostly his songs. And we don't even I don't even think we get Marquetta, you know, girl's husband's face at the end of the movie. Like, I think he's barely he's like not it's like a long shot of him holding the kid. Yeah, yeah he's holding mm-hmm. the kid, but I don't even think we see his face. So. Mm-hmm. So I do think, I think but I, I do think, think there's yeah, a, a yeah. little glimpse of it. But it, you, I mean, we, we certainly know, we don't find out what his name is. Like we don't spend any time with him. We don't hear him talk. That said, there's something like normally I I might feel like this was a case of he's more real than she is. But I kind of like the idea that this man isn't real until the end, and that it, it's just kind of a coming into focus of her and her life for all of us. Like I, I feel like a lot of the movie we do seem to sort of be filtering through his perceptions and what he wants and sometimes his frustration at how damn pushy she is. But at the end, when we finally see the husband, to me at least, it just kind of feels like, oh, this he's not an like just an imaginary barrier to you getting what you want. Like he's a real person in a real space that she actually has a real relationship with. And I don't know, there's there's something about that that I like in terms of almost shifting the perspective to like guys kind of going off into the fantasy land of maybe this musical thing will work, but she's kind of like coming home to something real. I think that works too. And I, I think in, in a way it's appropriate that we he doesn't get very much screen time because the he is, you know, the equivalent player to the ex-girlfriend who we hear on the phone but never really see except in those home movies. So, you know, these are these are characters that are deeply important to our main characters, but they're also very much on the margins of the, of the story itself in, in some ways. Well, related to that, Tasha, sorry, I don't know if you, you're planning to bring this up later, but like, what do you make of the fact that, uh, or, or maybe you already covered it in the earlier comments, but what do you make of the fact that they don't have names, right? Like for me, my interpretation of the fact that they don't have names is not, oh, these are like just archetypes of what a man and a woman in this kind of romance is. Like, that's not my interpretation. It's like, it's more like, like the whole thing feels very incidental, you know, like the whole story feels very incidental. And so the idea that we don't get any detailed understanding of who this ex-girlfriend is, who this husband is, feels like it's a feature, not a bug uh, or, or, or what's intended, you know? Yeah, I I dug into this a bit in the keynote, yeah. which I, I wrote and recorded separately from the rest of this podcast. But my my take on it was basically that there are a lot of reasons to not give characters names. But in this case, I honestly feel like these characters feel more almost more like characters at a song than characters at a film. And maybe mm-hmm. it's just because this is such a music forward story. Yeah, totally. But you know, if if you name like any like rock or pop or sing, singer songwriter ballad or or just you know song in general that you love that's iconic very few of them are a, a living on a prayer kind of story where you get introduced to the characters at the beginning and, and told what their names are there's there's often just a lot of for some reason I'm thinking of uh, somebody that you used to know you know, these these characters don't have names, but you can instantly identify them and their feelings. You know what their relationship used to be like and what it is now. You know what the singer wants. But the the characters within that song don't need names. And that's that's just kind of the feeling I get here is these two people are pretty iconic. They're also specific in a lot of ways, but you can you can see them as just like not universal figures, but song figures. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Yeah, I totally agree with that interpretation. But I think maybe like another layer of it is that it adds to the intimacy of this film. Because like when you're actually like talking in conversation with people, you know, and love and talk to a lot, like you don't say their name very often. Like, I, I probably say my husband's name aloud, like once every couple days, you know, so there is something about like removing that exposition element of like saying a character's name for the sake of saying it. It, it just adds, like I said, to that intimacy. At the same time, saying someone's name uh, has a, a kind of intimacy. I, I would call it the fact that David does it pretty frequently in his podcasting. I mean, he's called me by name, I think, more than once now already in this mm-hmm. podcast, which is well, just kind he's of a, quirk. a very good broadcaster, and we're not. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's a quirk that I have often noticed about your podcasting, David, because it's it's not a very common thing, but it's something that I really enjoy. It it does seem like it adds like an, an intimacy. Like I think here on this podcast, we tend to have just sort of a very general it's almost like every thought is just sort of being thrown out on the table and whoever wants can pick it up. But you have a way of directing things to people that just feels a little more intimate and a little more pointed and specific. And and I like it. But that said, using somebody's name is kind of a form of, of direction and intimacy. And we don't get it in this film. We get this kind of just like free floating two people who talk to each other a lot, but don't ever address each other exactly. It is fun to to see how the movie gets around that. So I think he refers the guy refers to girl often as herself. At the end of the movie, <laughs> he goes to her house and uh, the the babysitter, the nanny's there, and she's and he says, "Is herself in?" And I, I just thought that was a fun way of getting around the fact that neither of them have names in the in the context. Yeah, it is sort of funny that guy is a perfectly acceptable male name and girl really is not an acceptable <laughs> female name. So yeah. whenever we talk about, oh, guy does this, it sounds fine. And whenever we talk about girl does this, it sounds really odd. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what do you make of the the music in this film? Like in terms of just, just the songs? I, I feel like... I'm one of the reasons I'm so predisposed to like this is that I really like both this style of music and Glenn Hansard's music in particular, going back to the frames days. I just really enjoy his performance and the verve he puts into singing. But I could very easily see there just being a, like a whole section of of people who watch this movie don't really like the songs or the style of, of music here. And ha- the whole movie is just like an annoying like buzz of of unwanted sound because it's so dependent on the songs. I think you're right. I think you do have to to really like the songs in the context of the movie, which which I do. For the movie to work, you the, you can't be at odds with its music. But I never really listened to this outside the context of the film. I, I think it's terrific in, in, inside of it, and but I but it's never really drawn to the swell season apart. You know when I'm when I'm not watching once. Oh, gosh. I got yeah. a little obsessed with them. I dug up all of their music. I have seen Hansard in concert multiple times. He came through the AV club for uh, an AV undercover. Not hugely long. I now, now I'm not sure if it was before or after, but I want to say it was after this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, it would have had to be. But uh, yeah, he's uh, he's really intense in concert in a, in a very delightful and affable sort of way. But, you know, when he's when he's singing some of these songs and he just goes like full on screaming on the streets, like that's his performance style. I mean, I I kind of like he said, I, I like his performance style. I like it in the context of this movie. It's not something I have really pursued much outside of this movie, you know, and I, and I think that's fine. I, it's just like not my favorite type of music it's also not like buzzing noise or whatever you said like i don't dislike <laughs> it you know i don't think it's particularly difficult music i also don't think it's particularly like hooky music with the exception of maybe falling slowly you know like the songs all work really well in context you know lyrically performance wise but if i had to hum any of them right now uh, other again other than falling slowly yeah i don't think i could and that's wow. fine. When your mind's made up doesn't stick with you, given that that line is repeated about um, a thousand times, sometimes at high volume. I mean, okay, if if you told me hum, if your mind's made up, I could the song that happens at this point in the movie I, it, that I just watched a few hours ago. Yes, I probably could, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't. I can't say for sure. Uh, much longer than that. <laughs> Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. David, what's your feeling on this style of music? Well, first of all, I feel the need to point out, in case you're not already aware, I believe the Swell Season is touring this summer. Yeah. Um, so I was, was going to bring that up, too. Yeah. I, I looked it up there. The, uh, the Chicago show is sold out, I'm afraid. Right, uh, right. But other, other shows are not. So if you're a fan <laughs> yeah. of the Swell Season, they, you know, they, are, they are performing to celebrate the 15th anniversary of Once, although... 
I think it's actually been 16 years since once has come out, so yeah. I'm a little confused yeah. by that. But they also yeah. released a new song earlier this week. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I think you get a bonus. You, you get a little wiggle room because of the because of the, the uh, pandemic. You know. Mm, yeah. Can, there you go. There anniversaries you go. get a little little yeah. uh, mushy. <laughs> um. Yeah. So I haven't actually shared my overall thoughts on this movie yet, but. I think it's perfectly fine and nice, you know, like, and, and the reason I don't think it's particularly more than that is because it is, as you said, Tasha, so heavily dependent on the music. We're not only hearing multiple songs full length, but sometimes I believe the same song full length, mm -hmm. like some, I believe there's like a couple songs that are repeated all the way through. So if you don't like this music, I think it is, it is very difficult to enjoy the movie. And my opinion on the music is it's it's fine. It's fine. It's it's pleasant. Do you know what I'm saying? And and as a result, that that, that kind of mirrors my feelings on the film. Is that like, yeah, it's it, because it's so heavily dependent on the, I don't I don't find it objectionable, nor am I like, wow, this is extremely powerful and I love it. And I feel like the movie wants me to feel that way, the latter, you know, in order for it to work at the maximum emotional level. And um, sadly, I don't think it, it gets there for me. It's fine. I, I like it. It's perfectly fine. That's kind of how I feel about it, you know? I think that's fine. I'm not entirely sure that this movie does want you to be like full-throated passionate for these two to get together. You know, I don't think that Guy entirely knows what he wants. I think he's in a, a place of transition. And as he says, he's lonely. You know, he he hits on her because he's lonely. And he, he at the beginning in particular, when she's just like a stranger importuning him on the streets to fix her vacuum cleaner, he seems to tolerate her because it would be impolite to do otherwise. And as the two of them kind of move closer to each other, she's she's pretty adamant and specific about like, no, we, we can't get together and that's not something that I'm interested in. And he pushes her anyway. I, I don't think I don't think the movie wants you to feel like they should get together or anything, but I feel like when they're performing for the first time together or when mm. they're performing in the recording booth, like I think we as the audience are meant to feel like this is one of the film's emotional heights, right? Like, ah. you know, it, it's like the shallow scene in uh, Star is Born, which for me, that did, you know, that song is awesome in my opinion. You know, like that did work its magic on me. So I don't think it's like they want you to think it's some toward love affair. But I think that because these songs, I think, are supposed to represent the emotional high of the movie, because these people mm. are spilling their guts out, right? This is their way of communicating their deepest feelings. If the music doesn't work for you, it's hard for you to get to where the movie wants you to get. Uh, but I don't think it's like related to them getting together or not. Just want to clarify that. Gotcha. Yeah, that's entirely fair. I think the movie also kind of nudges you in that respect through the character of the, the recording engineer, who is very uh, sort of dubious and disengaged uh, at the beginning and that but is is won over by the power right. of, the, of their music <laughs> and you know becomes part of their little magical weekend recording crew you <laughs> yeah, know absolutely um, yeah if you don't relate to that guy yeah maybe it doesn't work its magic on you I think that's true, but I do think that it's significant that he's won over from I'm bored and these are a bunch of weirdos to eh, that was pretty nice. I mean, he he doesn't like mm. greet them as they come out with, oh, my God, you're all going to be stars. And I was there like he's not blown away by their performance. He's just like, ah, that was that was pretty nice. Pretty, so pretty nice. much what David just said, yeah, yeah. That's, and which is kind of like my reaction to the movie. Like there's some people who are, I think, more rapturous on this film. And but it's yeah, that that guy's journey. He's not like, that's the number one record or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. you know? He's like, that's pretty nice. Or he's not the, the, the loan officer just dying to, to give them a small loan and also yeah. play, play his song for them. Yeah. Oh, my God. In the uh, stage musical, which I, I read just like a, a point by point uh, breakdown of apparently he gets to perform with them. Oh, nice. Because <laughs> you don't have somebody in a, a musical like that. Apparently he is, is presented as not really great in the stage musical but he does get a song to himself and then he gets to go on and perform with them can, which i find hilarious can i just say <laughs> i wish we had more of those moments in the movie like i like the opening scene i thought was amazing when the guy tries to steal his money from the guitar case <laughs> and then he and then they bump into these people you know the the guy the loan officer who secretly wants to be a musician and you know they kind of encounter this group of people singing in this dining hall you know all these like lovely naturalistic moments i really enjoyed and i thought based on the opening scene that was the movie we were going to watch 
But instead, I think, you know, a fifth of the movie's runtime is just songs and montages. You mean you know? something like more verite, like shot on right. the streets of Dublin mm-hmm. kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Which I really, yeah. re- that stuff really resonated with me, you know, um, and I wish there was more of it. I do find the progression of that first scene pretty hilarious from it's amazing, yeah. somebody who's eyeing my money to the chase, to the revelation that they know each other yeah. and he sees this guy all the time and calls him by name. Like that's just, it's, it's a really well stretched out comic bit. Agreed. Another scene kind of in that vein, but that also bridges the music side of the film is them on the bus and him telling her in song about him getting cheated on and kind of strumming a little on his guitar. And uh, the, I, I love the the woman on the bus, uh, like kind of laughing at, mm-hmm. at the whole thing. But also thing, you turning know? around to give them a, a bit of a librarian, like yeah, but, you're in public, but, young but, man. But then she laughed afterwards. She, <laughs> she thought it was it was funny. So that that scene. Was she an extra or was she just someone running the bus? I, I, would, I would love to know. Um. <laughs> yeah, I certainly assume the latter, but uh, who knows? I love that moment because there is a lot of people expressing themselves, expressing things that they don't say through music in this movie. But that in particular is just like a great big deferral of emotion. They both do it at various points, but this is both the silliest uh, version of it. And it's maybe a catchier version of it because it's not freighted with huge emotion. You know, it's, it's not a falling slowly. It's not an, if you want me, it's a, just here's this very silly little ditty where I downplay this this relationship that broke my life. I'm a tattered shell of a man right now, but I'm going to put it in the goofiest, bounciest pop terms possible. I think that that song is very funny, but I also think it's really telling that he apparently did write this song. Like he's, I don't think he's improvising in that yeah. moment. He's just got this little play ditty that he's put together at some point of of bitterness in his life. And he whips it out rather than just answering the question. Agreed. It's a great moment. He feels like the only way you can talk about it, too. I mean, I, and especially someone you just met, but maybe at all. This is definitely a character who can expresses himself best through music and perhaps really only through music. And I think part of the connection between guy and girl here is, and also maybe one of the things that makes her more of a manic pixie dream girl than she'd be otherwise, because she doesn't fit the stereotype in a lot of ways, is she recognizes immediately that the song that he's singing on the street was written for a girl who broke his heart. Mm -hmm. Like, she just goes straight to who was she? And I think that while he doesn't initially want a relationship with anybody he just met on the street. Like he, he really wants to kind of push her away and go back to singing. But I, I think her observation that just she immediately knows that he's expressing something personal. And then she starts asking him very nosy questions about it. Uh, I think kind of hooks into his loneliness a little bit. The only other thing I want to add is uh, one thing I really appreciated about the movie is um, just how it ends, which is these are uh, by the end, I think these are fairly mature people and the the relationship kind of they need to go their separate ways. And there's this a, a very casual, I think, no, not casual, but like there's an acceptance of it on both parties that I think is it's just nice. You know, like not not every movie needs to end or not every relationship needs to end super dramatically or big speeches need to be had. In fact, like there's not even really a big goodbye for the two because they, they miss each other. Um, and so that's something I appreciated that added to the naturalism of the film for me. There is a grand gesture, though, in the form of the piano he buys her. And I, it's true. I, I would like to know how he afforded that piano. Yeah, I, I want to get weighed down with that kind of stuff. But that, was, that was kind of getting to me, too. <laughs> there, there is a grand gesture, but there's no kind of reaction to the grand gesture you know like i mean you see her smile and accept it but like they don't talk about it or anything you know that's just the movie yeah and so i appreciate how understated it was basically honestly that's well we'll get into this when we pair this up with past lives but that is the number one thing that made me relate this movie to past lives is the adultness of we're not really going to go forward with this relationship and the fact that it doesn't it doesn't break either of them. They they both kind of accept it in a way, a mature way that seems unusual for a romantic film. I really like 
this last scene they have together where she uses the phrase hanky panky panky. and it's not even you know it's it's not clear that this is an english phrase that she understands at first but then you kind of get the sense yeah no she she knows what she's saying and i don't know like there's a few mysteries in this movie and i don't know if she when she says she's going to come by later, she ever planned to, if she decided not to later, if that was like, if she recognized that as kind of a Rubicon moment where she could either get back together with her husband or engage in hanky panky. Um, (laughs) And I don't know. I I like that it leaves that unanswered. Another line that's part of that exchange is like, they're saying like, that would be nice. It would be very interesting. And then she goes, but worthless though. Like the, the, (laughs) the, the idea that, you know, whatever hookup they did, like it wouldn't, it, it couldn't mean anything. You know, there's really no point to it in their present circumstances. I like the idea of it being worthless. So the, one of the things that fascinates me in this movie is that both of these characters push each other a lot. Like she, she goes through that whole nagging thing where she wants him to teach her how to ride the motorcycle. And he's like, no, this isn't mine and you'll, you'll damage it. And it would be very upsetting to my father. But then they just kind of circled around that idea in that moment. And then they don't do a Gilligan cut to him showing her how to ride the bike or her crashing the bike or anything like that. It's just the pushing and the pushing and the pushing. And when they're sitting in the studio with a piano and he says, like, play one of your songs, she says no. And he says, do it. And then they go back and forth and back and forth. There are uh, several moments like this with the, the vacuum cleaner. No, you're going to fix my vacuum cleaner now. I'm going to come to lunch with you now. There's just a lot of pushiness on both of their parts, but not around sex. He asks her to stay. She says no. He apologizes and then doesn't bring the idea of a relationship up again until late in the film when he throws it out and she gently deflects it with humor and he kind of agrees with her humorously and then they move on. Those are the two moments in the film where he tries to push for more. She says no in two different ways and then he just doesn't push it. But so many other like encounters between them some the the whole motorcycle thing made me kind of uncomfortable. I was just like, take no, lady. Wow, that's really interesting that you interpret it that way because I just see it as flirtation. Like I just see it, and it, 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 it's a scene that really highlights the age differential between these both these characters and these actors. Which is, you know, we don't we don't need to get into that. It's a little squicky in in my opinion. But like I th- feel like it's just kind of her being immature and taunting him and you know there he's taking it to a certain degree because he is infatuated with her somewhat but i i don't necessarily see it as like it's maybe a little bratty uh but i don't really see any sort of annoyance on either of their parts in the in those interactions but oof yeah yeah that one in particular it it seemed to me like he was outright uncomfortable because he does want to give her what she wants he does want to you know to bring fun things into her life but he's caught between her and his father and the fact that he stole this motorcycle from his father who wouldn't approve and he gets tenser and tenser throughout that scene and it just it's not cute for me yeah, I just don't think I didn't find it that serious. I have to say, but uh, yeah. All right, David Keith, you're uh, you're in charge of breaking the breaking the lock here. Uh, yeah, I was kind of more with Genevieve on this one. Sorry. Same. Sorry, Tasha. Just, she's just being a, a cute little brat. Yeah, if I'm if I'm if I don't have everybody disagreeing with me at least once per podcast, it's not the next picture show. No, so no, this t- is Tasha. This keep pushing good. your opinion on us. Tell us why we're uh, wrong. <laughs> no, because then I might make you uncomfortable, and like you probably borrowed this podcast from one of your parents. Uh, it's just gonna be gonna be real squick. Uh, the one other thing I kind of wanted to touch on though is the one of the movie's romantic gestures is something that the audience may actually not understand until they read about it later. He's asking her, do you love your husband? But because he's uncomfortable with the question, he asks, you know, how do you, how do you say this in check? And she tells him. So he asks her the question in check, like as a way to distance it from himself. And she answers in check. No, I love you. And then he doesn't, have any idea what she just said and she never translates it and the movie never clarifies uh that was an improv moment that marquetta came up with she 
Glenn did not speak uh, any Czech and didn't know what she'd said. And he's reacting in the moment like as the character, but he also does not know what that moment means as you as you see it happen on film. So I'm I'm curious just what you make of that in terms of like a storytelling beat that you kind of have to, uh, to be all Scott Tobias about it, like go to an extra textual place to even understand what just happened. I wonder if they knew, I mean, I wonder how much the, the thinking that people are going to figure this out later on the internet, if that played into the thinking at all. Maybe. It, yeah, it's just, it's such a big thing to have happen like without anyone knowing about it. I like it's a great story, you know, that that it was totally improvised, but like I feel like it has to have been acknowledged at, and d- like the decision made to to leave it in. But yeah, it's it's wild to me especially that like such a young actor would throw a line in like that. Like it's a major uh shift in their in their relationship or maybe not. Maybe it's like a I don't know Czech. Maybe there it, there's different types of words for different types of love. Maybe she's expressing a platonic love. I don't know. Um, it's it's the same word, whatever yeah. it is. Because I I pulled out a translate program and I looked it up online because I was curious about the same thing. And whatever she gives him as the question he asks about her husband, it's the same word in both cases. So if it's if it's no, I platonically love you. <laughs> she also was just asked if she platonically likes her husband. Let me let me come in here with a contrarian take here, both on the movie Once, which I think a lot of people love and will be upset to hear my lukewarm feelings for in general. <laughs> but also, uh, let me let me get onto team. It's not that big of a deal. And what I, what I mean by that is we already knew these characters shared like a deep connection and it's not as though when she says like i love you it doesn't come like if she if they had subtitled it it wouldn't be like completely out of nowhere like i think we know that they have some affection for each other and the strength of the movie is that despite that like they realize that hey this is not a thing that we can act on we need to we have our own lives you know we have plans of our own and we need to move on so i i had already kind of come to this from the place of they already have a deep connection that is at times like at times goes into the romantic. And so for her to just say it in a way that he doesn't understand, eh, it's like it confirms what we already believe. But like it's not like it, cha- the, you know, it's it obviously doesn't change the outcome. So yeah. uh, team no. team, it's not that big of a deal. No, I, I actually like that you say that. And I think that's a better uh, encapsulation of what I was trying to get across than platonic or like distinguishing different types of love, because like I you can love different people at once and at different times in your life and in different circumstances and they are going through like a very intense connection moment you know so i i don't think her saying i love you is her saying i want to run away and be with you forever in that moment oh for sure i mean if she was committing in any way she'd say it in a language that he understands or right. would translate it mm. she's she's deferring the same way he's deferring mm. his emotions she's hiding behind knowing that he doesn't understand and she's almost teasing him with it yeah i'll push back a little bit on the on against team it's not that big a deal because i think the no is very significant there like no i love you it's a denial of her husband and i think you know i think ultimately this is a lovely bittersweet ending to this but you have to at least be invested enough in the spark between them to think maybe if things have gone a little differently maybe as like like what david said if 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 uh you know if, if things had not had lined up just slightly differently they could have been a couple they could they could, they could have like you know acted on this they, they, they could have found out what they're going to spend the rest of their lives wondering about well, as it happens, that's the big theme of the other movie that we're going to discuss in the second half of this discussion, that that question of how things fall together differently in a different life. So I think we're going to call it on once uh, and just go sing in the street for a little bit and maybe talk to each other in languages that not everybody here speaks. And we'll be back with a little bit of feedback. it's time for feedback. But before we get to it, we want to shout out Film Spotting, the next picture show's mothership podcast, hosted by Adam Kempinar and Josh Larson. As we're recording this, Adam and Josh's most recent episodes discuss the movie that we're talking about next week, Past Lives. They also discuss Pixar's Elemental and the top five movie characters who shaped them, with pop culture happy hours Aisha Harris in celebration of her new book, Wannabe, Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me. 
As for feedback, Bryce in Toronto recently wrote in with some thoughts about our pairing on Synecdoche, New York, and Asteroid City, specifically about the Wes Anderson film's opacity. Genevieve, will you read this one for us? Sure. Bryce writes, No surprise, there are moments of truly exquisite beauty in this movie. Meticulous art direction, production design that makes your eyes water, quirky, whimsical, often funny, and the total realization of a director's aesthetic vision. And while I don't always agree with Tasha, it seems to me that since Grand Budapest, there's been an ironic detachment to the performances in Anderson's film that have metastasized to the point where I'm not sure he can find room for genuine emotions anymore. The stiff formalism of Budapest seemed to be a goodbye to any kind of sentimentality, and maybe to our ability to truly feel something for what's happening on screen. The relationship between Gustav and Zeros still had tender, authentic moments of loyalty and fealty, which gave the film a quiet heart, but I'm not sure that's happened since, and in this film, I'm not sure he's even trying. To be fair, ScarJo is sublime. Even through the stoic mask Anderson seems to insist all his actors wear in this movie, you still feel the pathos swirling around inside her character. The meaning of it all, however, remains hidden, perhaps by design. David, I'm going to throw to you on this one, uh, since you weren't here for that discussion. Uh, Wes Anderson's Asteroid City, completely emotionless, uh, opaque movie with uh, extremely unclear meaning. Or do you have like a map to the stars that you can share us? I don't think the meaning is unclear. You know, I think it's very much a story about both. You know, I think grief is a huge part of the story and like what it means to move past certain stages in your life. And to a large degree, it's also a story about uh, creating art and what it means to create art when you, you, the artist, don't even necessarily understand the full context and meaning of what you've created. I think those are very powerful ideas in the movie. Wasn't a movie that I connected with very much uh, personally. I, I think it is pretty inaccessible. I think the emotional distance that the movie holds you at really kept me away from it. But it's clearly something that's intentional. You know, my uh, co-host on the Filmcast podcast, uh, Jeff Kanata, uh, compared it to the work of Bertolt Brecht. It's very Brechtian. And there's this intentionality of removing any kind of recognizable emotion to it. And for a lot of people, I think that's working well. And just for me, it didn't, it didn't work quite as well. So I love the ideas, but just didn't connect with the movie emotionally myself. I didn't either when I was watching it, and I I felt that that was intentional. The more I've sat with the movie since we recorded about it, the more it's coming into focus for me as a film, not just about creating art, but just creating in general. I, I kind of feel like that's one of the things that links the whole frame story of a, a radio or TV show, it's kind of unclear to me, that's showing us a play, that's showing us a story with the young scientists who are creating these inventions the 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 movie is very humorous about in an extremely straight-faced kind of way. They're all people who want attention. You know, the boy that jumps off the roof, the boy that's constantly daring everybody to dare him to do things, kind of comes out and says, like, he's just looking for attention. And I think kind of the, the tension between the people in this show who are creating art for attention or for plaudits and the people who seem to be living it. Or things like Jason Schwartzman's character coming to Ed Norton's character and just kind of like donning this character and, and method acting him uh, at the playwright and then seeking what seems to be a sexual connection. Like there are different ways and levels at which people create things and for very different reasons and with very different intentions. And I, I think there's just a lot going on here in terms of different ideas about why people create. Even the, the three little kids with their like creating rituals around their dead mother and inventing like a whole kind of mythology around her are building something creative in order to explain the world to themselves. I feel like this is a movie that you maybe want to see a couple of times to scratch below just a very glossy and resistant surface. I, I, I think that this movie is going to play better on subsequent views, and I certainly don't blame anybody that doesn't connect with it, but it, it's finally beginning to kind of sink in for me as a movie with thought through resonant themes instead of a movie about nothing, which is certainly a, an accusation I've seen aimed at it. Yeah, it's not fair. I, I've seen it twice now. And like, you know, I would talk about on the show, the, the, the key scene to me is, is the moment where, where Schwartzman's 
steps, you know, character steps out of character and goes and talks to Margot Robbie on on the balcony. And like that really got me the first time. And boy, did it get me the second time around. I, I really think, yeah, it's, it's, it is a movie that benefits from a second uh, a, a second viewing. And I don't know, there's, there's sort of this knee jerk, you know, rejection. I don't think that's what Bryce is doing when he's writing in. But there's a knee jerk rejection of of of. Wes Anderson, the whole Wes Anderson thing, in some quarters, and and I think he's I think he's a, a superb filmmaker, and I uh, look forward to to whatever he does. I found out today, kind of by accident, that like I, I was just googling the movie for some specific thing. I think probably to look for um, images to tweet out our episode about it, and ratings from people who've reviewed it on Google specifically are averaging about two stars out of five. I at, is at it first all I five and like, ones though? I mean, is it like all like five star reviews and one star reviews? It's mostly ones and twos. Mm. It's it's averaging out like much much less uh, high and low bell curve than I would expect, and much more. Are the twos are just kind of pulling it up from just being like one one point five. I think it's interesting because like the the same Google page that showed me that also showed me that like Rotten Tomatoes users uh, are averaging about seven out of 10 IMDb users averaging about seven out of 10. But people who reviewed on Google really don't like it. And I don't know what that says about that demographic specifically. But I find it interesting that it's so different. I have wondered how the uh, recent-ish TikTokification of uh, Wes Anderson is maybe uh, coloring some people's uh, reactions, and or, or just sort of maybe enabling that that knee jerkness that that you mentioned, Keith. Like, I don't, I don't know what these words mean, TikTokification. And I, 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 <laughs> oh I, my frankly, gosh! I, I don't. I don't want to know. <laughs> oh, Keith. I, I'll just say I don't think that that anything that's happening on TikTok with regards to people imitating Wes Anderson is um leading to them like disliking this movie more than than they otherwise would i think there are a couple phenomena that might be at work number one uh in my opinion having seen every single one of wes anderson's films this is his least accessible film like in my opinion uh, other people may disagree so that's the weirdest film that's yeah, for sure weirdest film like <laughs> the comedy has a certain immediate appeal to it that may maybe isn't always there in, in his movies even if you're not necessarily follow you know even if the movie is a little baffling i think there's some really broad comedic stuff and some fun characters to latch on to but but yeah it's definitely it's it's by several degrees his strangest film Sure. Yeah. Uh, maybe most or at least accessible may be unfair. Maybe it's um, one of the, how about that? But uh, so that's part of it. And the other part of it is, if anything, uh, the movie's doing quite well at the box office from what I understand. And uh, maybe there's a lot of people who are they're seeing a Wes Anderson movie that otherwise wouldn't have seen it. Or maybe they expect Wes Anderson to be merely an aesthetic and they see the movie and um, they find out that there's kind of deeper layers than what's there and, and they react differently. So so, uh, so maybe uh, there's an outside possibility it's having a negative impact, but I don't know that it's it's not like I, I'm sick of seeing the TikToks and therefore my t- opinion of the movie is bad. It's kind of maybe maybe the TikToks set a, a different expectation than what people are. Yeah, I, I think that's kind yeah. of what I'm I was trying to get at. Apologies so thank if you for I misunderstood. The, no, no, no. I, I thank yeah. you for uh, saying it more concisely than I did. <laughs> yeah, I guess I do wonder if so many people doing him so in so, on such a surface level kind of like devalues what he actually does a little bit. Mm-hmm. But I, I do have a hard time imagining people watching six. Here's my day as a Wes Anderson character TikToks and then thinking I'm going to go see Asteroid City. Well, that wasn't like TikTok at all. I, I just I have a very hard time imagining it working that way. I think it's possible. I think yeah. it's possible. I but, mean, TikTok yeah. has changed how music is made and written, you know, like yeah. it has an effect on all media eventually. <laughs> and David, before we transition out of this, because this is most definitely a rabbit hole and one that we could spend the rest of the night going down. Do you see like you when because you're on so many different mediums and you're creating content in so many different formats for so many different platforms? Do people on TikTok relate to you about movies uh, or just creation in, in completely different ways from some of the other platforms you're on? Um, I I will just say, I think that the thing that I've been most impressed with on TikTok is just the sheer amount of creativity uh, that is uh, that is available. Um, a lot of uh, Gen Z people making extremely, I would say, effective short films 
on TikTok. Um, one one recent trend that is a lot of fun if you want to look it up is uh, the grimace shake. I don't know if you've heard yes. of this. <laughs> Um, oh, we did a we did a whole thing about it. But actually, as with so many TikTok things that trend, you can find it on YouTube where mm. I'm a little more native because I don't have to or download Instagram, the app. which is where I get all my TikToks. Right, sure. <laughs> like I'm, the elder the millennial I am. <laughs> I'm watching these grimace shake videos on TikTok and I just like astonish I'm like, I don't even know how some of these were there's like visual effects in some of them. I'm like, I don't even know how some of these were achieved. Mm-hmm. Um so I'm constantly kind of impressed at the uh, the creativity of the folks on there. Um, I don't know that the, the way they relate to to film is, is any different. The way they present their thoughts is is quite different than people who are, have listened to this point in this podcast that we are on right now. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, but I, I think the, the creativity and the inspiration is, is definitely there. So. Well, I look forward to seeing what uh, TikTok and every other medium that seems to be taking up the Wes Anderson flag does going forward with Wes Anderson. But I'm I'm also looking forward to seeing how Wes Anderson himself develops because Asteroid City does feel like just an ongoing development and specification of his style. He's just becoming more and more Wes Anderson with every movie. Uh, I'm very interested in. What if he just goes to TikTok? What if he like, like I'm gonna beat them at their own game? I, I'm TikTok Wes Anderson now. I, I might I might re-download TikTok and get back on if I, I could just check in with Wes Anderson's daily uh, exploration of uh, some some bizarre set or the other. I I don't know if you saw he, he commented on there. the trend too. He said he said please don't send me videos of people doing me is what he said <laughs> because. Uh, because it, he didn't want to be self-conscious because when when people quote unquote do you uh, then you ask yourself is that what people think of me you know so, is that what it sound like is that, that what I yeah, look like that, I mean, yeah. it's, it's a wonder that Christopher Walken can still act yeah, exactly. you know? <laughs> absolutely or, or Nicolas Cage uh, yeah, sure. the of author of the oh, Nicolas Cage book yeah, uh, I even going back to the Cannes Film Festival, I, I watched the news out of Cannes very closely because when the film premiered, the only thing I was expecting out of the interviews was everybody asking him, what do you think of the uh, the AI versions of you at the time? And like he's he's pretty much consistently said, like, I've never watched any of this and I, I don't want to know about it. He's kind of like Keith talking about uh, what TikTok is. I just don't want to know. Good for him. Good for him. That's what yeah. I said. Well, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations, as long as they're not trying to tell Keith what TikTok is. <laughs> if you feel so inclined to talk about anything else, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll talk about Past Lives, a film that puts its genteel love triangle a little more on screen and then offers a metaphysical explanation for it all. Look for that episode next Tuesday on your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. You can find us at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at nextpicturepod if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. Until next week, though, remember, if you show up at a sing-along party, you'd better be prepared to sing. Sing.